Hello, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Bear, Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. If you are paying attention, you know that today's episode is late. I apologize for that. I've been filming on Sunday afternoons, and this weekend, Sunday afternoon, I was sick. So sorry about that, one day late, but here we are. Today, we are going to talk about the phrase, another gospel. So as you know, we're reading through the Come Follow Me material and picking out some questions that evangelicals would be curious about uh, regarding our faith as we go along, maybe some things you're curious about regarding their faith. The whole point is so that you might have a better conversation with your friends or your family members, people you love, people you know, who their, their faith is slightly different and there's a little bit of tension there, trying to help you understand them so that you can share some of the gifts that come in our faith that they might benefit from. Okay, couple reminders for you first. Last weekend, so two days ago, FAIR hosted an online-only conference called Defending the Book of Mormon. Those talks will be released on the FAIR YouTube channel in the upcoming weeks. Um, we live-streamed it all day Saturday. Um, and the live stream isn't available anymore. We're going to dish out the talks um, over the next few weeks. Brent Schmidt's talk on grace is still exploding in my head. Stephen Smooth's talk, um, not on the book of Abraham where he's an expert, but on the difference between translation and revelation as it pertains to the book of Mormon. Oh, fantastic. And you should watch for that one and listen to it. And yes, you see a bit of me in there too. I didn't present anything, but got to introduce the speakers and ask some questions. Um, what that really means is I got to hang out with the best people all day long without having to write a paper to present myself, all of the fun and none of the pressure. It was great. You also can see Zach Wright um, doing the same thing, doing some introduction and some question asking. You might remember Zach from his FAIR podcast called By Faith and By Study. Um, he examines all kinds of stuff about evaluating sources, um, how to know if something you're looking at is a, is a good, reliable source or if it isn't. You also will see Sarah Allen. Sarah wrote that gigantic 70 parts response to the CES letter. Um, at one point during the conference, we were running a little ahead of schedule and needed to fill some time before the next speaker was ready. Sarah and I just sat down and had a chat. Um, it, it was fascinating. Sarah has some interesting things to say. I don't actually know if that part is going to be shown on video there really isn't a reason to it's sarah and i sitting and having a chat and i don't know why you would want to watch that but th there there you go um last bit of news at fair we have some kind of fun projects coming up for next year um not really ready to tell you about any of them just yet but it has to do with what will happen to this podcast some other super fun stuff that I will get to work on, some other things other people at FAIR are doing. I will let you in on details as soon as I am able. Okay, today we are going to talk about that phrase, another gospel. And our jumping off point is 
Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And this verse comes up a lot for evangelicals when they're thinking about what our church teaches. If you have evangelicals in your life or if you've read stuff online, you have probably come across this claim. You're teaching another gospel. And I want to dive in here and try to understand why they say that um, and take a look at how evangelicals actually are defining the gospel. Um, There is quite a bit of agreement between us and them and and some disagreement. Um, So what is the gospel according to evangelicals? Um, They would probably all start um, with, well, the gospel literally means the good news. No one here is disputing that. Evangelicals and Latter-day Saints would be on the same page there. Um, We do differ in some areas. I could probably come up with a pretty good definition on my own about what, how evangelicals would define the gospel, the the criteria that they're using. but but let's start here. One of the things they say is, this is from a, a popular evangelical speaker who I won't name for you, but you know who it is. Um, he says, the gospel is imputed righteousness. What do we receive because we are counted righteous in Christ? The answer is fellowship with Jesus. This will remove obstacles to the only lasting, all-satisfying source of joy, Jesus Christ. Now, Latter-day Saint friends, I suppose some of you are sitting here thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Jesus, joy, like I want all these things. This sounds great. But let's unpack it a little bit. And we have to start with that phrase, imputed righteousness. And here is sort of the the can of worms. What is imputed righteousness? Um, By definition, it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to Christians, enabling them to be justified. This is a term that comes from Martin Luther and the Reformation. And at the time, it was a corrective to what some of the Catholic practices were. A lot of things had become correct. That's why there's a a need for a reformation and a counter-reformation. Martin Luther is trying to correct some of these things, including the practice of the buying of indulgences. Now, an indulgence sounds like it should be a free pass for some illicit activity without getting into trouble. But what it really means is that a person's um, sentence in purgatory will be reduced by a certain number of years. That's what an indulgence is. And they would buy a certificate um, that would promise them 100 years or or whatever off of their stint in purgatory. Um, Luther fights against this practice, among many others, and he's absolutely right to do so. He's trying to say that people don't need to spend money to get a softer sentence in purgatory. That, that Jesus pays the price. You don't need to, to pull your wallet out. And I know 
in theory, when you put it that way, Latter-day Saints don't disagree with that. In fact, we have some really strong doctrine around priestcraft and what that means. And, and, and we would be right there with Martin Luther. But the idea is part of a bigger package of ideas that include believing that God is angry at all of his children and will absolutely torture them for eternity. I even hate saying that, but that's that's the belief that God is angry. He will torture them for eternity unless during their lifetime they make a profession in, of Christ. So Luther's phrase here, imputed righteousness, solves one problem, the, the indulgences and other practices like them that were going on in his lifetime, but it opened up another one. And I don't know that even Luther saw this coming, but here we are 500 years later and Protestants are still grappling with what it means to accept salvation that they can't earn. Um, this doctrine is called um, solo fide by faith alone. Um, and lately, meaning the last 120-ish years, it has turned from you shouldn't be allowed to buy indulgences into Jesus did it all so you don't have to do anything. Right? You hear the difference. But it hasn't always been that way. In fact, if we go all the way back to Augustine, <laughs> he wasn't always trying very hard to keep the apostasy at bay, to be honest. Probably not the favorite person to quote for Latter-day Saints. However, um, he, he gets it right here. Credit where credit is due. Augustine is correct here. He uses the term infused righteousness. And you can hear Luther playing off of the Augustinian term with his imputed righteousness, but Augustine offers us the idea of infused righteousness, which for him means God bestows justifying righteousness on the sinner in such a way that that righteousness becomes part of the person and that they go on to live a life um, where trying to strive for holiness matters. You can see how Luther's change, which made some sense at the time because of the practices that he was fighting against, but it has been used to claim that Jesus's righteousness does everything for us and we don't have to do anything. Here it is expressed by one evangelical pastor. He says, your salvation is a free gift. You cannot do anything to earn it. You can't even ask for it because asking would be you doing part of the work. If God is going to save you, he's going to save you. It actually has nothing to do with you. It is God's work. You are the object of the work, but that is all you are. Really different than what Augustine is saying. Augustine was closer to the, closer to the truth on this than Luther was. We have to introduce a third character, someone we've talked about here on this show before, John Wesley. John and his brother are the founders of Methodism, and he he comes after Luther, right, about 350 years after Martin Luther, and he tries to offer a corrective to the changes that Luther made by coining the term imparted righteousness as a way to say 
that salvation is through Christ alone, but it must empower the process of sanctification, which Wesley also called Christian perfection. By perfection here, he means something similar to what we mean when we say that we are to become like God. And, it, and it's no wonderful, no wonder that Joseph Smith at one point says that Methodists are closer to the truth than some of these other groups. Um, but what Wesley is doing here is saying, yeah, J Jesus is the only way and that has to become part of who you are and you work that out in this sanctification process of trying to live in a, a holy way that will please God and make you become like him. Really, really, really different than what Luther was saying. So, so what does this have to do with evangelicals? They would all affirm that the gospel is good news, that it comes through Christ alone, but they radically disagree on what comes next. Do we have to do anything after re receiving salvation or don't we? The, the room here is deeply divided. So why do I tell you all of this? Why, why do evangelicals think we have another gospel? I think you can see at this point that the versions of the gospel offered by Luther and Wesley, two men who still very much even influence evangelicals today, um, the versions of salvation that they offer are radically different, or at least they've been taken in radically different directions. And yet these two versions of the gospel don't really trip evangelicals up. They don't worry about the two of them being a different gospel. They they accept both of them. But they couldn't be more different. They, they're in fact opposites. The only thing they have in common is Jesus Christ paid for salvation. In one version of their gospel, the individual is not required to do anything at all. And if you try, you're actually insulting God by saying Jesus is not enough. And in the other version, Christ paves the way for you, but you must also grow in holiness as time goes on in order to reach perfection. It's it's weird, right? Those are two entirely different things. But evangelicals will sometimes easily say that we, Latter-day Saints, have a different gospel. And if you ask for specifics, you're likely to get maybe quotes from past leaders that are not part of our standard works, them claiming that we teach things that we don't actually teach, um, things taken wildly out of context. Um, by the way, if you would like a talk on how things have been taken out of context, I really, really recommend to you a talk from the most recent FAIR conference by Lejean Pareth. And she gives an incredibly detailed count of how and why that happened, um, especially as it relates to Brigham Young. Her talk is fascinating. It's one of my favorites from that week. Um, but, but all that to say, evangelicals might give you this quote out of context to say like, see, here's what you actually teach when, when it really isn't. So why do evangelicals do this? Well, I mean, one of the reasons, frankly, 
is that anti-Mormon propaganda has been effective. This was true in Joseph Smith's day. Um, it's true a hundred years ago. There's a there's a book you should know about if you don't. It came out this year, written by three BYU professors. It's called Marianne Meets the Mormons. And it's about the church in France in the first part of the 20th century. And during this time, there's almost no one who's a member of the church in France. There's less than 500 members. Statistically, they are not a significant group in what's going on in France at that time. However, the amount of literature, art, music, movies that use like Mormons as the bad guys is gigantic, entirely out of proportion. There's 42 million people living in France at that moment. Less than 500 of them are members of the church. They're a dot. They're, they're nothing compared to the population. But anytime a book or a movie needs a bad guy in that era, it's pretty likely to be a Mormon. It's very similar to the stereotyping you see today. Turn on any number of television shows from the last year. You already know this, right? So, so anti-Mormon propaganda has been very effective. So, so what now? How do you, what do we do with this? Within the evangelical community, you can have these two radically different views of what the gospel is and nobody cares. But when do you want to talk about the gospel as Latter-day Saints see it, which includes a belief in the saving power of Jesus Christ that agrees with both Augustine and Wesley, the, the idea that sanctification matters, that holiness matters, all of a sudden we're just being too different. Well, you have a number of options here. You could fight with them. Don't recommend it. It's an option though. Um, you could simply bear your testimony because they can't really refute that. And, and that's always a decent move. Uh, but let, let me offer you something a tiny bit different. On this channel, we're really focused on how do you talk about these things with the people you love, your friends and, and your family? Sometimes bearing your testimony can feel a little bit like shutting down the conversation instead of opening it up, it, 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 at least with the people that you're close to. Now, our leaders, prophets, apostles, your, your local leaders have given us plenty of spiritual advice on how to manage these situations. Don't be contentious, invite the spirit, bear your testimony, all of these things. And, and those are good and you should listen to them. I am not a prophet or an apostle or one of your local leaders. So I will not offer you that advice. I will offer you a little piece of psychological advice. I'm a mental health therapist. This is what I do. Here's the thing, people love to feel understood. I love it, you love it. There, there's a quote that says, being heard, and, and here that means being understood, feels so close to being loved, that for the average person, they're indistinguishable. If you can make somebody feel like you're listening to them, you're trying to understand them, they will feel loved by that. You have to really be trying, right? You can't you can't phone this one in, you can't fake this. But if you do that, you are gonna get some really, really 
interesting things out of that conversation. So try to hear them before you try to get them to hear you. And if you can hear them, chances are pretty good, they are going to be way more open to hearing you. So maybe some questions like, what, like, what does the gospel even mean to them? Not their denomination's um, definition of it, not parroting Luther or even Wesley. Like, what does it mean to them? Did does admitting that there are different versions of the gospel, even among Protestants, make them feel anxious or worried? Why? What's that about for them? All these kinds of questions, similar questions that are going to help you see how they conceptualize the gospel, what that means to them, what getting it wrong means to them, all of the anxieties that are underneath that, you're going you're gonna to feel pretty listened to if you go in that with the intention of trying to make them feel understood. Now, maybe that's just therapist psychobabble, uh, but it also works. If you want them to understand why you see the gospel the way you do, you're probably going to have to put in the work to try and understand why they're resistant to it. If they're throwing a bunch of complaints that sound like they got them off some website, they probably did. If they're just parroting blah, blah, blah stuff you've heard before, they probably read it on some website and you're not even yet actually getting to the point where they're giving you something to even try to understand. And, and that's okay. Maybe they got to go through their list before you can get to that. Try to help them identify what their actual concerns are and listen to them to try to understand them. That is the most effective way to get them to listen to you. You kind of got to give before you can get, at least in this scenario, at least from a psychological perspective. So there you go. Um, next week, we have what is essentially part two of this conversation. We're moving into Ephesians um, and going to talk about how Paul conceptualizes the idea of works, especially in Ephesians. It'll be great. I'll see you then.